Hello and welcome to the AMBOSS podcast, Beyond the Textbook. Every two weeks, experts from AMBOSS, the medical education platform, interview medical students and healthcare professionals to showcase international perspectives on everything in medical school and beyond the textbook. I'm your host today, AMBOSS Partnerships Manager, Dr. Tanner Schrank. Healthcare can be seen as a right, a product, and a business opportunity. While physicians are taught to put the welfare of their patients above everything else, they're also in a profession full of innovation, investment, and capitalist businesses. So how do the fields of medicine and investment overlap, especially in the burgeoning digital health and online medical education sectors? To help us dive in and explore these topics and look to the future, today we're joined by a vice president at Bessemer Venture Partners and a medical student at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. Welcome, Morgan Cheatham. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. It's a pleasure to be here. I was just actually putting down my AMBOSS app to take this interview. Wonderful. So I'm curious, how did you go from growing up in the Washington, D.C. area to Brown University to Goldman Sachs to where you are now? Yeah, that's, that's a big question. I'll try to tackle it. So I grew up in D.C. and I always start my bio with that because it very much informed what I saw growing up. Growing up near the nation's capital where major decisions are made was quite transformative. But I also didn't have much exposure to industry in the sense of technology or finance. And so growing up, I, from a very young age, wanted to become a physician, and I wanted to pursue the fastest path to do that. And so I applied to a number of, kind of joint BSMD programs and was so fascinated by Brown because both the program, but also the open curriculum, it seemed like a really interesting place to explore as someone who knew they'd ultimately end up in medicine. And so once I got to Brown, my eyes were completely opened to all of the other industries and opportunities. Like the term venture capital was not something that I'd heard until probably my sophomore or junior year of college. Mm -hmm. But I immediately became so fascinated by the notion that capital and technology could be a tool for scaling clinical knowledge and medicine. And so I had this extremely formative experience in college where I, I interned at a startup called Kairos, which was a physician-founded company that was, and still is, trying to build schemas and technologies that better organize and manage provider data. And seeing a physician leading that company and leveraging his clinical expertise to build solutions that scaled not just, you know, one-to-one, patient-to-provider, but could scale one-to-many, that, that fascinated me and, and quickly became my North Star. Shortly thereafter, as you, as you mentioned, I joined Goldman. I was, it was an internship on the healthcare banking team. A lot of that was informed by, you know, seeing a venture company, raising capital and trying to understand, like, what are the capital markets? How are businesses funded? And ultimately, after that experience, realized that I was far more interested in the earlier stage businesses, you know, startup companies that are really just trying to figure it out. And so then the time came actually for me to decide whether I was going to go to medical school right after college, take some time off. And the answer was so clear to me. I actually like had a startup at the time. I was like doing something in fintech. I was just exploring all over the place and ultimately decided that taking some time off would be the best choice for me. And so in doing that, I met the team at Bessemer Venture Partners in a very random collision and quickly fell in love with the firm's ethos and culture of strong intellectual honesty and curiosity. And I had long admired the healthcare practice there. So was going to take a two-year deferral. Two years quickly became four. We had a <laughs> boom in digital health that I don't know if I'll see something that large again in my career, you know, $30 billion invested last year and really just enjoyed the ride. After four years in investing full time, I got a, a lovely phone call from the dean of my medical school asking me, you know, if now was going to be time to come back. And I, I made the decision that that now was time. I wasn't getting any, any younger. And so now I'm a second mm -hmm. year here at Brown. Wonderful. 
Could you tell me more about Bessemer? What exactly is Bessemer Venture Partners and what do you do as a vice president there? Yeah, so Bessemer is a large global venture capital firm. We've been around for over 100 years, which actually makes us the oldest venture firm in the United States. And at the firm, there are investors who are investing in a number of different areas, really across the innovation spectrum. So I have brilliant colleagues who are investing in fintech, in space tech, in crypto, in enterprise software, in consumer companies. And my area of focus just happens to be in healthcare and life sciences, which really spans everything from digital health or health tech. I think back in the day, we used to call it healthcare IT. So there's kind of an evolving name for it. So that could Mm -hmm. be software selling to providers, to pharma companies, payers, employers. And also we look at services businesses. So companies that are actually involved in the provision of care. And as we've seen over the last five years, these services companies are increasingly becoming tech enabled, which has solicited a lot more venture investment. On the other side of the house, we also invest in life sciences companies. So that could be technologies and tools for research scientists, but could also include diagnostics as well as therapeutics. So you can see it's a very, very broad spectrum. And to answer your question succinctly about what I do day to day, no two days are the same, but the larger framework of venture capital is, you know, we are capital allocators and we meet with founders and executives and CEOs. And we really mm-hmm. you know, hear their stories and evaluate their companies, informed largely by research we're doing. So if we think a particular area is interesting, we'll meet all the companies in that area and eventually make investments, which is really when the fun begins, because that's when you, know, you get to work with the team on building the business and driving the impact that you believe the company can have. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. A couple of years ago, Bessemer published their 10 laws of healthcare, and law seven was services save lives software saves time. Now, you mentioned tech-enabled services. So since telemedicine and remote learning, remote monitoring, all of this has blossomed during the pandemic, how do you see these tech-enabled services sort of taking over the doctor-patient interactions? I'm a big believer that technology is well-suited to really augment the clinician. I don't believe that AI is going to replace doctors. I do believe that AI can support doctors. And so as more companies tech-enable their services, what this really means is that we're using tools like telemedicine to expand access to patients, right? If you're following up on a lab result, do you need to come back in person to the officer? Could you video call or even phone call. I mean, phone is like the V1 OG version of of telemedicine. And so can we increase access using the technologies that candidly patients and physicians alike are already using in their daily lives, whether it's social media, whether it's personal banking. And then as we think about, you know, expanding access, that's really what we call in that article that you mentioned, the front office Mm -hmm. of care. So what is the patient's experience and what is the physician's experience? One thing I think that mm-hmm. you know we don't talk about enough in terms of telemedicine is that not only is it helping patients access care, but it's also really transforming the ways that physicians and clinicians broadly, I'll, I'll use clinicians to refer to all of our wonderful APPs as well. It's transforming their experience of work, right? Mm-hmm. Because prior, like you really could only practice medicine if you were in person. And now you know, you can really do so from a wide variety of formats. So we are really interested in companies that are also thinking about the physician experience as care is transforming. The second piece mm-hmm. of, of a tech-enabled services company is really the back office. And this is the part that I think gets obfuscated from a lot of medical students and trainees. Although I think as soon as we're in the EMR and seeing how billing works and, mm-hmm. and understanding more about prior auth, it becomes very apparent that the business of medicine is highly inefficient. And so there are a number of companies that as these new care delivery organizations are stood up, 
are rethinking that back office, everything from clinical operations to revenue cycle management to patient flow to really alleviate these practices and their providers of these administrative burdens that, as we both appreciate, are driving so many out of the workforce. Yeah, totally. So I live in Poland where I went to medical school, but I'm from the U.S. And then Amboss is based in Germany. And I think of doctors here in Europe, and they still use fax machines for medical records. They still handwrite these and pass them off to other people. So there's a long way to go before AI completely replaces these, you know. Completely agree. And I, there's some stats around this, right? Like I think it's, you know, fax is still used for a non-trivial percentage of healthcare communications, even here in the U.S. too. So I think we're far from, yeah. far from killing the fax machine. Yeah, yeah, totally. When it comes to medical students, how do you think they can prepare for delivering these clinical services to help patients using AI, telemedicine, healthcare software? Do you think that they can get any leg up today to better prepare themselves for the future? It's such a good question. You know, I think if anything, their experience is growing up around computers and technology, you know, assuming that folks had access to it. Simply if you were born in the 90s or the 2000s, like you, you weren't ignoring the personal computer and its existence. So my sense is right. that like a lot of that fundamental training of just having technology be a part of your life day to day is, is really equipping folks with what they need to prepare for tech enabled care delivery world. I would say, you know, in medical school, there's not as much extra time for, you know, working with companies or working in venture, although we can talk about how to manage it. And so I just encourage folks to, you know, not keep their head in the sand, like obviously pass your courses, focus on what you need to do, but where you can try to consume content that really talks about what the future of medicine is going to look like, because odds are you might find an opportunity to really help usher in that, that new era and you might be inspired by it. Yeah, that's great advice. I think that really gets at the digital native sort of generation. And they already have a leg up. So something with the pandemic was the great resignation. How do you think this huge shift in the workforce has changed the healthcare industry? We can talk about digital health startups, but we can also talk about traditional healthcare providers. This is a huge change to healthcare in general. Certainly. And, and it's one that we can no longer afford to ignore for a number of reasons. And, you know, we were jamming before the podcast about a piece I recently wrote about the rise of direct to clinician startup companies. I'll speak to this briefly, but I really do want to talk about, you know, the incumbent provider landscape. We not only have like record levels of burnout following the pandemic and candidly just extreme mental health crises across our clinician networks, but we also have a rapidly aging patient population, right? Baby boomers are coming of elderly age, and this is obviously driving greater demand and consumption of healthcare services. And at the same time, if our patient population is aging, we also know that our physician population is aging. And so, you know, today the average age of a, of a PCP is, is around 58 years old. And so you can expect the resignation to also include retirement for many of our physicians. So I, I speak to all of these dynamics because I think the TLDR, if you will, is that we've got a material supply and demand imbalance in our industry and, and a real labor shortage that's emerging. I don't think that we can techify our way out of this, right? As I talk about in the piece, yeah. because of all of these confounding variables and these forces, this is a nonlinear problem. So we, we're not going to solve it with linear solutions like hiring our way out of it. But I also don't believe we're going to techify our way out of it, right? We can implement technology to increase the efficiency of the average clinician, but it's going to take a multimodal strategy. One, actually addressing the burnout head on and, and reimagining what the daily work and life experience really looks like for clinicians. It's going to require hiring and really increasing opportunity for workers in the U.S. to enter the healthcare field, whether it's in physician roles or other advanced practice provider roles. And I think that there's just so much opportunity, as I talk about in that piece, for innovation, whether it be software, services, tech-enabled services companies that are tackling this very problem. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And we can even dive in more to this article. It's called Direct to Clinician, How Product-Led Growth is Changing Healthcare and Life Sciences. So in it, you talk about gaps in the current workforce, in the current training. There's education and skills gaps. And you mentioned the aging population. There's also rising tuition costs to factor in. So with all of these challenges and struggles, you also write that there's an opportunity to adopt new models for medical education. You even mentioned Amboss actually as a leading consumer platform for medical trainees. But I'm curious, what stood out to you about these platforms to separate them from other ways of learning medicine? Yeah, I think, Tanner, that's a great question. There are a number of things that I, I would mention. You know, I think the first is just that Amboss, Glass Health, and some of the other companies I, I mentioned on there are really the first companies to build consumer-grade technology for clinical workforces. I mean, when we think about products like the EHR, like let's be very clear, the electronic health record or EHR is really designed for billing, right? It's a clinical documentation tool that drives downstream billing workflows, and that's its most important function. It wasn't designed with the experience of clinicians or kind of the patients in mind. And so what I think Amboss, Glass Health, you know, other companies like Hippocrates did even earlier is they just reimagined what it would look like to infuse medical education medical technology products with best principles from other industries, notably consumer software and social media. And if we're using all of these other tools, you know, Uber, Instacart, you know, you name it, Twitter in our social lives, and then we show up to work every day and we're forced to work in something that looks like it was built in 2001. I mean, yeah, of mm -hmm. course, it's going to drive burnout, right? And so I think that in doing so, Amboss and, and these other companies have really been able to build consumer evangelism, right? There's a buzz about the product. There's online communities. There's Reddit forums. There's people on Twitter taking screenshots of the product and sharing it and really, really building almost a religiosity around the product. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, it's kind of tilting on its head, medical education and even how we use apps to learn and basically what ones we deal with every day in our lives. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of information in medical school. And even if you use Amboss, even if you use these other apps, you're going to spend a long time learning this. You referenced an article that says medical knowledge doubles every 73 days. That is unbelievable. How do you think the future of medical education can evolve to allow anyone to learn and keep up with this information from medical students to clinicians to allied health professionals? Yeah, it's one of my favorite statistics. And I think there was a thread on Twitter recently from the authors of First Aid or, or someone who was speaking about First Aid and how information's only been added to first aid for you know for step one like, it hasn't been redacted at all like it i think like 10 or 20 yeah. years ago is like it was like 200 pages long now it's 800 so like yes like the sheer <sighs> amount of information that's being asked of us to maintain in our minds is growing exponentially i mean I think that is where technology comes into play, whether it's medical reference tools, like UpToDate is a great product. And actually, you know, in some ways was also built by a very enterprising physician who at the time brought best in class consumer principles to medical publishing, right? So mm -hmm. I think I think there's a huge opportunity in, in the medical reference space to really augment the clinician. I think that companies taking it one step farther, like, you know, there's this whole area of, for example, like real world data. It's essentially a, a category that says, let's actually aggregate the vast amounts of clinical records that we have and start to leverage machine learning and artificial intelligence technologies to really understand trends in that data across various therapeutic areas or patient populations. So one company that I'm really excited about that's kind of reimagining this medical reference space is bringing real world data analysis to the point of care. And this company is called Atropos Health. What it allows clinicians to do is if you have a patient that you're caring for and it's a highly complex case, maybe it's, you know, immunosuppressed patient with many comorbidities, 
you can actually ask a question using Atropos technology and query a network of data that asks the question based on patients that look just like yours. So it's not just this static Googling of like epilepsy and, and mining through the symptoms, but it's really mm -hmm. an ability to ask a targeted question and scan both the canonical medical literature, but also these other signals that we're finding value in, such as real-world data. So I'm really interested mm -hmm. in companies that are taking orthogonal approaches and leveraging new data sources to help clinicians answer medical questions. That's such an interesting angle to come at it. That just is going to revolutionize medical education, healthcare delivery, everything, sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. So now I have maybe a difficult question. So if we go way back, 1983, there was a book that the Institute of Medicine released called The New Healthcare for Profit. And in it, authors discuss healthcare as a commodity and the nature of product. And they say in 1983, quote, it's currently being debated heatedly whether healthcare is unique among the goods and services in which people potentially have an interest. On the one hand, some argue that healthcare is like any other commodity, like beer or pantyhose. It should be sold in the market to those who have the capacity to buy. After all, such other basic necessities as food, clothing, and shelter are sold similarly. But then, the authors continue, on the other hand, some see healthcare as more fundamental. While it is recognized that people cannot have an unlimited right to all the healthcare they could possibly want, healthcare is viewed as different from other goods and services, something to which one has some kind of moral right. It is viewed that way because it is fundamental to survival. As someone with a foot in healthcare and business, I wanted to ask you, do you see any ethical conflicts there arising from this overlap? Oh, you'd be blind not to. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, this is something I think about a lot. And I think, candidly, like the private equity community has received a lot of scrutiny over these physician practice roll-ups where their private equity firms are buying independent physician practices and are operating them and making business decisions that, you know, as the literature shows, may or may not always be in the best interest of patient care. I think the venture community is now receiving increased scrutiny as well, particularly on the expectations that venture capital puts on a business, right? So let's just take a step back from a first principles perspective. Venture capital is a financial tool. It's a capital resource that is used to fuel high growth and largely tech-enabled companies, right? High growth in healthcare isn't always best and it's not always possible. And when you look at the business models of some of these companies, like we have a fee-for-service system largely here in the US, which means you make more money when you provide more services, more medications, more healthcare. You could see that incentive becoming extremely perverse for, let's say, a telemedicine company that's prescribing medication digitally. Well, if their business model says they make more money when they prescribe more medications, you can easily see how there could be influence over, let's say, a clinical protocol. And, and this is not legal to have that happen, right? To have the business influencing the medicine. But you could see how those incentives would become very skewed of, oh, well, for these kinds of patients, maybe we should be prescribing. And I think if you follow the news around this, you're already starting to see, you know, there have been companies, particularly in psychiatry, that are coming under scrutiny of potentially, you know, improper prescribing practices. So as an investor, personally, I'm hyper aware of these dynamics. And I, I ask myself the question, if this company is wildly successful, does it create a world that I actually want to live in? Because in venture, we're not investing for like a one or two or even a three X. We're investing in the breakout outsized outcomes, right? And so every investment I make, not only do I have to believe that the company is going to be outsized and successful because that's what I'm being paid to do and that's my job, 
But ethically, I have to ask myself, if this is successful, does it create a world I want to live in? But it's a salient question on the top of, I would hope, every investor in healthcare's minds, but certainly certainly yeah. mine and certainly ours at Bessemer. That's great. And you mentioned intellectual honesty? Yes. Yeah, that's great that you and the team cares so much about improving healthcare, improving medical education, and improving outcomes for patients and clinicians. And I think that intellectual honesty really, really matters in this sense. Appreciate that. The other thing that you have to think about is in venture capital, like the tool itself is so powerful. Like if you're an investor and you don't sit back and interrogate the sheer privilege and power of being in that position, I think that's where oftentimes things can go astray and we lose sight of what we're here to do, which is ultimately to improve patient care and and advance the field of medicine. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you can do it ethically. Yeah. So finally, if you could give our listeners any advice beyond the textbook, what would you say? My advice would be to train your priors. I had a professor in undergrad. He gave us this advice, which was, at this point in your lives, just try to consume as much content as you can. And I was reflecting on that. And I was thinking about all the work I was doing for my degree that I mentioned in economics and neuroscience. And there's this framework called Bayesian statistics or this field that exists, which is really simple in that it says that the probability of any one event is based on kind of the cumulative probabilities of these things called priors that you train. And I've since kind of adopted this Bayesian philosophy as I think about how I learn and grow, which is like everything that I'm putting into my mind is really training my priors. And I don't know what future events per se I'm training for, but every experience I have, whether it's meeting a new company, going to medical school in general, seeing patients, choosing to do extra rotations, all of that is training my priors in in some way. The way I consume content online, the way that I like to be very online, really putting myself out there to meet new people, even if I have like no idea why we're meeting. Like I would just encourage folks to train your priors as, as much as you can, because the random collisions that happen when you do are are quite beautiful. And you might find yourself stumbling into an area that like venture capital that I never thought I would pursue. And ultimately, it's where I hope to find, you know, long term home in my career. That's great advice. I really like that. It's like seize the day, but like prepping for it. It's like you have to set yourself up for success. Carpe diem, but like read a book before. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, Morgan, thank you so, so much for joining me today and sharing your thoughts. I think it's really insightful and our listeners are definitely going to learn a lot. Tanner, thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge Amboss fanboy and uh, look forward (laughs) to seeing all the new features and products that you all build for future physicians like myself. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Amboss International Podcast. In today's episode, we looked at digital healthcare from the side of investing and medical education from the entrepreneur's point of view. The links in the description can give you a more in-depth understanding of these concepts. If you like this episode, please give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. You can check out the Amboss platform for your medical studies and sign up for a free five-day trial at amboss.com.